just want to start off a little story. Back in 1940, okay, Nazi Germany is, is on the rise, right? So if, if you know your history lesson, the World, World War II begins in 1939, 1940, uh, the Germans invade the Netherlands, okay? Uh, and then they begin to expand their occupation there in the Netherlands. And in, in, this, whole, uh, in this whole area at the time, there's this family called the Ten Booms, okay? And, and maybe you're familiar with Corey Ten Boom. She's uh, just an incredible woman, and she passed back in, the, back in the 80s, but she has this incredible story, and I, I want to start there with us. So, so Nazi Germany begins to expand. So by 1942, their, their occupation had reached levels where man, they, they are tracking down every Jew they could find, right? That they would round them up and they would send them to concentration camps. And so Corey Ten Boom, not a Jew, uh, but, but a Dutch Christian of the time, um, she, she realized and her family following Jesus uh, had to respond. And so they began to hide uh, Jews in their home secretly. In fact, they built an adjacent room, hidden room, uh, next to their flat that they could hide Jews in so that when, they, when the Gestapo came, they, right, they wouldn't be found. And so uh, she w- w- has never really given a final figure of how many people they potentially saved in this place that became known as the hiding place that her and her sister Betsy and the rest of their family, Casper the father, that they began to, uh, to put together and bring people in. Um, by, ni- by 1944, however, uh, they were found out. Okay, and so then a uh, kind of a Dutch informant heard about what was going on, told the Gestapo they showed up, they raided the house. They found no one because they couldn't find access to this place that was this so-called hiding place. And so none of the Jews were caught and harmed and no one uh, of, or sorry, everyone in the family just kept their mouth shut and didn't say a single thing. Okay, and so the entire family was hauled off to prison or sorry, excuse me, hauled off to a concentration camp. And so in that same time, while in that concentration camp, Within the first kind of few weeks, the father Casper was killed, and then some, some months later, uh, her sister, closest friend in the world, Betsy, was also, her life was taken. And when you talk to Corey, I mean, when you listen to Corey share her story, she begins to kind of talk about how there was this, this one guy, there was this, this one guard that she remembers, and she looks back at that time and says, Man, if not for that guy, I think my sister would still be here. Right? If not for this one, because of the treatment and, and, and the conditions, and especially this is one guy, and it was, has been burned into her brain about this guy. And so um, her sister Betsy dies, and then uh, a short time later, she's actually re- released because of a clerical error. Right? So something got filled out wrong, and she gets released, and then 13 days later, everyone else that was with her in that same woman's group was, was put into a gas chamber and killed. And so her life was spared by the grace of God, and so she is sentenced, and she goes on to tell this story and become this very kind of famous author and speaker all around the world, speaking towards the atrocities of what happened during the Holocaust, but also towards the grace of God. And she always tells this one story of how one day she's doing a, uh, her book tour, and, you know, she reads some of the book, and people come up, and, and they can meet her, and she can sign the book and things like that. And so all of a sudden, this guy walks up and, and, and kind of just beaten down. He, he just looks kind of heavy, right? And, and she greets him, and she said that in an instant she wasn't sure, but for some reason she felt like she knew this guy. And this guy, with kind of tears welling up in his eyes, begins to tell her, Miss Tenboom, I don't know if you remember me, um, but I was, your, I was one of your guards when, when you were at the concentration camp. And, and, and I came here because I've become a Christian now. Uh, the Lord has, has saved me. He's shown me, you know, w- what has happened. And I know that God has forgiven me, but I, I just don't know, like, have you, is there any way possible that you could ever forgive me for what I've done to you and to your family? And, and, and I mean, just, just think about that ask, Right? 
And I, none of us, listen, none of us can put ourselves in, in, this, in these shoes, right? But for a moment, just try and process this moment for this woman. This man who is responsible, not just for the death of, of her family, right? But for like literally thousands of people within this camp. And he's coming up and saying, well, I'm a Christian now. Can you forgive me the way Christ has forgiven me? And she looks the guy in her eyes and just with heavy heart, she looks at him and says, no, I can't. I can't forgive you for what you've done. And the man kind of sinks, you know. She says, in a rush of conviction, she begins to process the cross. In this moment, as this guy stands before her, with all the history and all the past, all the hurt and all the pain, sits before her and stands before her, and this rush of wind of the Spirit comes in and convicts her and reminds her of the cross and reminds her of one word, and she says that word is grace. And she says she realized in that moment that, no, she could not forgive this guy, but that the Spirit could. And the Spirit lived inside her. And grace has so moved her and forgiven her that maybe she could. So all this happens in an instant. And so as this man is sulking and begins to walk away, she stops him and says, you know what, I can't forgive you, but through Jesus I can. And to this day, or not to this day, but after that day, they, they actually began to form a relationship. And one that, you know, would go on to speak very loudly to both the church and the non-church about what true forgiveness and what grace really looks like. And, and it's that type of reality that is exactly what we pick up here in the story. In the book of Acts, if you haven't been with us, we're preaching through the book of Acts. And we're looking at the early church and how it's gone from just like kind of 12 or 11 random dudes and exploded into thousands upon thousands of people in this region. And now this thing called Christianity, or what they called it the way, is exploding on the scene. And it's all because of the resurrection of Jesus. And last week what we saw is the salvation of probably the most unlikeliest convert in the history of the world. Indeed, way worse than any guard at Auschwitz or any of the other concentration camps. In fact, the guy that we talk about last week and we'll talk about today, his name was Saul. He was the greatest persecutor, villain, uh, anti-Jesus guy that probably ever lived outside of Satan himself. We saw him last week going door to door, knocking on doors, pulling people from their houses, dragging them off to places where oftentimes they'd be imprisoned and sometimes killed. Right? This guy was the persecutor. And then in a moment, God interrupts his story and saves him. And we see the grace of God, which we, we would define as unmerited favor, right? That, that for nothing that Saul brought to the table, for some reason, God said, all right, well, I still love you and I still want you to be my son. This, this confounds the mind when we really think about it. Because I think we, we, we want to try and always, in our culture, in our reality, we don't like unmerited favor. We like merited favor. That's why we try and prove ourselves to each other. We think if I live in such a way that you will then like me, respect me, you'll think highly of me. So grace is a confounding idea for our culture because it doesn't fit in with our cultural paradigm, which says prove yourself, earn it, show it, and then you get my love. Or, or if, you know, internally, I'm prideful, so I think I'm something, so you better respect me. You better think highly of me. I deserve your respect. That's not what grace is. The grace of God has said, listen, you have brought nothing to the table. This is not about you. In fact, not only have you not brought nothing to the table, you've tried to destroy the table and everything on it and everyone around it, and yet I still love you. That is the grace of God. Now, this grace is what transformed Saul. 
This grace saved this man who brought nothing to the table, didn't deserve to be saved, but is saved because God in his love chooses to do this. Now, grace doesn't stop at salvation, but grace is active, grace is moving, and grace changes people's lives. From this day of conversion in Saul's life until the day that he is, he is made a martyr, grace serves him and sanctifies and makes him more like Christ. And this text will push us towards the same thing. Some of us would sit here today and say, and I, I, I don't know if I could ever do and insert what we talked about. And again, the reality is, is that you're right. You couldn't do it. I can't do it in my strength really much good at all outside of God's grace. And so we need to push into that this morning. And I think there's some of you in here who are going to experience conviction, right? Like, and, and, and I think rightfully so. You should, as we go through the text, you'll experience the conviction of the fact that grace is calling you towards things, right? It's calling you actively to pursue and dispense grace to, to others, right? To have things be changed in your life. I think you should be convicted at that. The church should be the dispenser of the grace of God because we have experienced the grace of God. I think there's others of you in here, though, and I want you to hear this right now, that some of you need to experience the hope of grace this morning. Because some of you are so tied up with your past. You're so tied up with your brokenness, your pain, and say, well, this is just my reality now. This is who... No, no, no. The grace of God is sufficient. The grace of God does not look at your past sin. Or rather, the grace of God looks at your past sin and says, I love you anyway. So some of you need to experience the hope of grace this morning, and I think a bunch of us need to experience the conviction of what grace is supposed to do in and through the heart of the Christian and in and through the heart of the church. Can you hear me? Got some amens? All right. So let's get started. We're going to start in verse 19, okay? For some day, oh, sorry, Acts chapter 9, verse 19. If you don't have your Bible, by the way, uh, we've got some Bibles up here we'd love to give you. If you want to follow along with us, just raise your hand. Don't feel weird about it. We pass them out every week. Anyone? Anyone? Yep, Andy Zyman, staff member. No Bible. Just kidding. Okay, Acts chapter 9, verse 19. Follow along with us. Excuse me, in your word. For some days, this is Saul, okay? This is a guy who just got transformed. His life was just changed. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Okay, so again, you, you went from this guy saying, I don't believe any of it. It's crazy to the point where I'm going to kill people who would say, this guy's the son of God. This guy is risen. Anything that had to do with Christianity, this guy was trying to snuff out. And here you have in this direct turn, I think another evidence of the resurrection like we talked about last week. His mission is changed, right? Grace transforms our mission. Okay, at, at, at every level, not just in the external, but in the internal. And so think about this. When I, when I uh, went to San Diego State before I was a Christian, my whole hope in going to college was to get a really good job, was to make a whole lot of money, and to buy a whole lot of stuff, right? I mean, like, this, this was my entire vision and purpose for going to school was to get that job that was, I mean, I, my older brother's a stockbroker, my family has done well, so there was this expectation, right, that a lot of my extended family, they're, they're, they're pharmacists, they're working in tech, and so I started out as a computer science major. I was like, all right, I'm going to get in the computer industry, this is a great step, and I'm going to start working my way towards that six-figure paycheck, right, and then, and then here's what happened. I, I, God saved me. Now, let me be very clear here. What I'm not saying is that there's anything more uh, holy or profound about my profession than the computer 
computer engineer because that's just completely and totally false. What I am saying is what existed in my heart, the purpose and the vision for my life, where I was headed, was just entirely empty and unhelpful and I'd say sinful. That I was just striving for this financial gain that in the end was going to let me down. And so God transformed the mission of my life to be about his glory, which then meant and led me here. It just as easily could have led me to computer engineer. If that's your role or whatever you do, God has called you into your profession at this time that you would glorify him. Your mission is to serve and glorify him wherever you're at, not yourself. And so what you see here is, is this guy Saul who had this mission, was so focused. Man, as many Christians as I can find around, find around that, that is, that's a win for me today. And now notice where this is happening. This is all happening in Damascus. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that see, see Saul was on the road to Damascus when he gets saved. So literally en route to the place when he had just after, uh, sorry, just before he leaves to go to Damascus, he had just gone to the chief priest and said, hey, will you give me authority, essentially, to go to this city and persecute as many Christians as I can, round them up, bring them back. Is that cool? Chief priest says, yes. And so notice, what is his thing that's happening now in Damascus? He goes from persecutor, and he's going to become persecuted. He goes from, man, I'm going to this place to do this thing, and yet God interrupted my story. Grace changed and transformed the mission of his life, and now he exists in Damascus, no longer trying to destroy the faith, but to expand the faith. God will transform the mission of your life through grace, and some of you need to be convicted by that this morning. Like some of you need to think through, well, what am I pursuing? What is the central reason why I'm going after the things I'm going after? Because grace just might transform the, actually grace wants to transform the internal purposes. The external might still look the same. You might still land up and land in the same job. But it, but it might look differently and hopefully it would look differently inside us as we seek what we pursue because God transforms our mission. Some of you need to know that God in his grace is transforming the mission so you know that wherever you're at right now, there's hope because no matter what the world says about where you're at, God says something different. And he's transforming the mission and the purpose of your existence in your life here this morning. Now, a little nugget for us. You notice that as, as Paul is there, uh, he's with the disciples there at Damascus. Now, he gets saved, and a lot of people just kind of leave this this gap of time here between what after Saul gets saved and then, after he, and then when he begins to proclaim the gospel. Um, and, and what happens is he gets to this church in Antioch and he begins to be cared for, mentored, and discipled. And, th- and this is just so significantly important for every single Christian here in the room. That if your life exists and you're trying to pursue Jesus and what grace is trying to do inside of you and outside of you and you're doing it by yourself, it is not going to work. The entire scripture is written in the context of community. Every letter that Paul writes was written to a church or to a group of people or, or to be read and understood within the context of community and discipleship. And so if, if you're running this life by yourself and you don't have, listen, if, if you're a gal and you don't have some other women that are around you, preferably especially like an older woman or two that's speaking into your life, that can call you out, that can teach you, that can train you, that will invest in you, pray for you. If you don't have that, you need to get that. 
Like, period. It doesn't have to be here. We have a mentorship program here that if you want to find someone to be that for you, we will help link you up with somebody, okay? But if you don't have that, you need to get that, okay? Same with you fellas. If you just got, listen, I remember being in college. I just had kind of my, my four other 20-year-olds, okay? And the reality is, is that just meant you had five 20-year-olds making terrible decisions for four years in college, okay? On the whole. So, fellas, you need to find an older guy who's got a little more life, a little more maturity, a little more know-how, and say, all right, can, can, you, can you invest in me a little bit? Like, l- let's jump into the Word. Let's, let's, let's see how much we can allow grace to transform us. And that's also a call-out then to the older folks in the room, that if you're just kind of sitting by and not investing in the younger, man, that's on you too. Okay, this isn't all hands on deck. This is what we saw the church early on do is say, hey, man, people are getting saved all over the place. We better start teaching them about Jesus. We better start discipling people. Because if we don't, this thing's going nowhere. And that's the exact opposite of what happened. The church explodes, and I think it's because they got, hey, we need to start investing. Okay? And so if you don't have a mentor, you don't have a discipler, please, please do that. Okay, so grace transforms our mission. Verse 21, moving on. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Okay, so these are logical questions if you're the church in this circumstance. So Paul, or I keep calling him that, he's going to become Paul. So when I say Paul, if you don't know, Saul and Paul are the same guy. He's going to get a name change soon, new identity. That's all great. Okay, so if you're Saul, Paul, same dude. So Saul, here in this moment, is at the church, and he's doing all these things, and the people in the church begin to look around and say, wait a second, isn't that the guy who tried to kill me, right? Like, whoa, wait a minute, isn't that the guy who, right, and then, Right? Isn't this the guy who we heard that back in Jerusalem stood over our brother Stephen, the first martyr of the church, and watched him be stoned? And said, yeah, no, I approve of that. That's good. Is this not the guy? And on and on. Is this, is this not the guy? Logical questions, I would imagine. But I think what we look at in the text is this transformation that exists in their hearts because God, I think, through grace, transforms our worldview. Because then all of a sudden what seemed impossible is just no longer impossible. Because if, if Paul, if Saul could become a Christian, if Saul could say, actually, you know what, all this stuff I've been living for, I actually don't even believe anymore, and I believe just the opposite. I'm actually sold out to the point where now I'm going to start preaching the gospel as soon as I know it. And if that's true, then man, God, you're, you're blowing my mind right now because if you'll save Saul, like what else could you possibly do? God transforms your worldview through the grace of God, because it confounds our mind. It does not make any sense. We don't have, again, the right paradigm to think it through. I think if you look through the news daily, which I do, if you go to google.com or something, it's easy to look at story after story after story and say, man, these people are messed up, right? Like, if you just read the headlines, you're like, I can't believe that person would ever do that. I I can't believe that they could actually commit that atrocity, and, it, and I used to read those things and say those very same things and think, man, that is just that evil, awful person. What grace tells us and has transformed in my worldview is just the fact that, man, that person and me are the same person. Like, we're, we're, we're just as susceptible to the act and the work of sin in our life as the other person in this world. 
and, and we are, man, foolish to think otherwise. We say this often here that we're all probably about between three and five terrible decisions away from calamity. That like right now things look great, but it, it just takes this one thing, which leads to this other thing, which leads to this other thing, right? Like we, we just heard about a story from uh, another family that's, that's part of redemption at one of our other congregations. And, and just the details of the story are just so incredibly sad about how a husband, everything was great, and then he started looking at something, and then he looked at something different, and then he looked at something different, and then now he's potentially being arrested for, you know, committing acts with, with a minor. Okay. And it's all coming out to his wife, and it's coming out to the church, and it's all kind of coming out. And uh, I heard that story this week, and I just thought to myself, like, man, that, I, would I ever do that? And, and I think in, in, the, in the righteous moment of, well, no, I'm better than that, or, no, it's just foolish. Because that was not his plan either when he first started looking at stuff he shouldn't look at. But sin equalizes us all. But so does grace. Okay. So, so sin equalizes us all because we're all just as susceptible to the work that it will do in our lives, the amount it will tear us down. But hear me, grace is an even greater equalizer because it draws us in. Because this idea of the unmerited favor of God says like, it didn't matter what I did, what he did, what will happen in the future, what you've done in the past. God levels the playing field in his grace and says, listen, you're all the same, but I love you and want you, so come. Regardless of what your story is. God transformed the worldview of this early church to say, I think there was a moment to say, gosh, man, if he's saving Saul, man, this guy is real deal. Like, he, he truly could save anybody if this dude's getting saved. And I think it begins to continue this work that's happening in the church for them to go unto the Gentiles. Which, if you don't know the whole story here, essentially, for most of the story up to this point, most of the gospel reach has been to other Jews. But the whole vision of the church was to go to the world. In, in, uh, in Acts 1a, it says that it will go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are the recipients of the fact that the mission went to the ends of the earth. I think this moment is so profound. God using this graceful act in the salvation of Saul to tell the church, listen, we can go everywhere. And Paul, Saul is going to be used to reach the world. And God transforms our understanding of who we are and the fact that God has done so many incredible things. Of course, he can do more. There's a church plant, uh, a handful of friends of ours started in North Carolina called, uh, called One Harbor. And my buddy Donnie and then they started a church about eight years ago. It was amazing. I mean, the church just blew up. And I remember talking to Donnie, like within like the first, I, honestly, I think the first year, they were like 250 people, Right just exploded. And I said, well, that's awesome. And I said, what are things you're most excited about in celebrating? He said, no joke, man. He said, of the 250 people here, I'd say at least 150, if not more, were non-Christians when they showed up to our church. And I said, snap, man. I said, well, that seems like that would build a logistical problem. Like, you've got all these non-Christians. Like, how are you discipling? How are you mentoring? Well, he goes, man, I, I don't know. I mean, he had 
these brand, like, like got saved that morning, were like leading the worship team that afternoon type stuff, right? And I'm like, well, how are you navigating that? And he just, I remember this so clearly, he's like, dude, grace of God, man. And that's, hear me, that sounds like such a trite, tight Christian answer, right? Oh, it's the grace of God. Like, oh man, how are you so awesome? Grace of God, you know? Like, Vince, why, why are you the best? Grace of God, man, it's just, just the grace of God. It's just the favor of God. The fog is just resting on me. It's an acronym. Um, it sounds so like just Christian-y. Yeah, it's the grace of God, man. It's the grace of God that allows anything to flourish in this world. Like, it's the grace of God that saved you. It's the grace of God that transforms your heart and your mission and your future and your vision. It's the grace of God, right, that conforms us to the image of Jesus and gives us the mind and the heart of Christ to look at each other the way we should, which is through his eyes, with grace being the great leveler of all people, okay? And that's the way I want us to view each other. Verse 22, let's continue on. Look at the next thing that grace continues to do in the church. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Grace offends the unrighteous. And I don't mean, right, so let's, let's be clear. I don't mean grace in the sense of just like, hey, be a graceful person or just kind of be nice to other people. I'm talking the, the, this idea of unmerited favor from God. It offends those who don't get it. You don't get it till you get it type of situation. This world, again, is built on, prove yourself, do it, and then you get my respect, then you get my love. This confounds them, and so they rebel. This raising up, the fact that what's happening because grace has so overcome the church and they're spreading this gospel to the world, offends the unrighteous here, offends the Jews here because they know, man, if this thing continues to explode, this impedes upon my power and my strength, and so they attack it. And again, we see this guy. Here, think about this. He showed up to Damascus to to round up some Christians for persecution, and then he finds himself numbered amongst them. What a transformation. What a twist. But the reality about grace is that it doesn't make a ton of sense, and we need to be honest with that, and it's going to freak people out. If we truly live it, if we truly understand it, if we truly extend it, it is a paradigm-shifting reality to our culture that says, listen, it's not about you. It's not about what you can offer me. It's about what I can offer you. Like that, that, think, about, think about every friendship, whoever you showed up here with today, your roommates. Think about, think about just every relationship you have, husband, wife, with your children, your coworkers. That at every level, whenever they frustrate you, drive you crazy when you're upset, when they're leaving stuff on the floor, etc., etc., think through this. I don't care what you've done. I'm still going to act in grace. And then ask yourself, Is that what I do? Or do I contend and fight for me? Do I I try and justify myself, my position? I know that in arguments that I'll have with with Verity, and I know that there's just often times where we'll be in an argument, we'll be in the thick of it, and then it'll just hit me like like a wave of like, you fool. Like, what what are you doing? 
how little do you actually believe in the grace of God right now? Because the grace of God would not call me to continue to fight and continue to argue and continue to, to battle because I like to win. And I, I mean, you, a lot of you know me. I am loud and I talk often. And so that's helpful in an argument, right? Especially with my wife who's tiny and quiet and, and British so doesn't really have a good handle on English. And so just, just kidding, sweetie. Um, <laughs> It's easy for me to win that, right? Um, foolishness. And in that moment, a functional disbelief in the grace of God. And that's true in every relationship and in every situation where what wells up inside of you is some type of, I deserve more respect from you. Some type of, well, I deserve you to treat me better than the way you're treating me. Now, that happens in all of us. I'm telling you, the grace of God says it shouldn't. And the grace of God wants to transform that out of you. And I guarantee you, as we walk in that, it's going to begin to offend some people. Because people don't want that. People want you to, to prove it. And they want others to prove it. And when you start loving on people who've done nothing to prove it, that offends people. Okay? Well, why, why are you doing that for them? They haven't. Because of the grace of God. Serve each other that way, okay? Let's continue on to verse 26, kind of by way of transition here. This is three years now between when Paul gets saved, Saul gets saved and, uh, and, and moves off to Jerusalem. So for three years, he spends his time in Damascus preaching the gospel, being discipled. And then he's going to land in Jerusalem here in verse 26. And, and here, Jerusalem is like the center of the church world at this time. And so it, you would think that, like, these are probably, like, our all-star Christians here, right? They're going to get it. They're immediately going to dispense grace. It's going to be incredible. So let's, let's kind of see what happened. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how, the road he had, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So the setting is, Paul goes back to Jerusalem, sees all these other believers. You would hope that motivated by the grace of God, he'd be like, yeah, okay. But again, we're like, oh, that makes sense, right? Like if, if this guy had shown up here and we knew his past, we knew his story, there would be questions in this room as well. In fact, man, there, there were multiple times, and I know, and I've had discussions with people where you'll come, I've, I've had literally like just recently, people here at this church say, I can't believe that they come to this church, pointing to someone else here. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? Like, well, man, the stuff they've done. And I was like, let me stop you right there and leave, right? I didn't say it. I was like, let me stop you right there. What do you, what do you mean by that? Like, wh what are you ultimately saying? And, and, you know, they shared some stuff, and I said, well, ultimately, like, what, what does that mean in light of the grace of God? That was seven years ago. That was seven years ago, man. Who are they now? What, what is the further life? And, okay, so if grace would even extend in the moment when someone offends you that you still then say, well, no, the grace of God. Surely then seven years later, man, that grace should be palatable and sufficient. But the reality of this part of this text is that grace is fruitful and evident. And here's what I love about this passage is everyone's like, ah, I don't, I don't know about this guy Saul. 
And then who steps up? Barnabas, who's shown up in our story just a few chapters ago, known as the encourager. And he's like, hey, I was with, I was with Saul in Damascus. And, and yeah, man, he's the real deal. Like this dude's been preaching. He's been getting after it. He had this whole conversion story. The Holy Spirit is with him. He's one of us. And the church says, all right, man, if you say so, Barnabas. And I love that just the gall of him to stand up amongst all of the apostles and all of the leaders in Jerusalem and say, no, man, he's good. Like, I've seen it. Why? Because grace is fruitful and evident. If grace is working in you and through you, we should see it. Like, like if grace is so changing and conforming your soul, then we should be able to look at your relationships. We should be able to look at your outward actions and say, yeah, no, that, that person understands the grace of God. Which then on the opposite end, I think must make us contend with the reality that if we look at the life of the Christian, and hear me, I am I'm just as guilty of this as any in the room. If we look at the life of the Christian and say, man, we see no outward action that seems to reflect any level of grace, the question then must be, do you understand the grace of God? Do you know the grace of God? It just has to become then the next question. And, and that by no means means I know where any of you are at. This is not me sitting back, kind of pulling this fake goatee thing here and saying like, oh, well, Daniel, I don't know, man. Not great, you know. Do you know the grace of God? <laughs> you know? that, that's not what that is. And you should not look at each other through that lens. But I'm just telling you that it should be evident. That, that if we're walking in this, hear me, if we're walking in this, that in any moment, if I wanted to call Kevin out right now, that Edwin would stand up and say, no, man, I know Kevin's life, and this dude loves and knows Jesus. Like, that's what, if I wanted to call out Curtis, right, that no, his wife would be able to say, no, no, I, I know Curtis decently, right? Like, he's, we, we hang out, okay? And this, this, this husband of mine, he loves Jesus. I've been with him. There's fruit. It's evident that he understands the grace of God. And I, I mean, I, I began to just think about that. You know, like what, what would people say? What would people say uh, uh, about me? And I think there's a handful of you, right, that come on Sundays that I, I, you, you see me for 45, 45 minutes. And on the whole, I just get to talk about all these things from the Bible. So it sounds and looks good. So I was like, well, I can't count on any of your opinions because you'll just think things are great because you see me for 45 minutes out of 168 hours in a week. But I thought, well, what would my wife say? Like, will my wife say, man, no, Vince understands the grace of Jesus. Like, what would my son, he's only two and a half at this point. But, but like as he grows and gets older, like would he look to his dad and say, man, my dad understands the grace of God because of the way he lives it out. Okay. And I, that is a helpful question for us as we continue to process through this scandalous thing called grace and the work that it does in our lives and in the church. Last passage here in verse 28 as we wrap up this text. So, so we went in, again, Saul, so we went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, for they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and set him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So, so now Saul, they're like, all right, man, the persecution's ramping up. Let's, let's send you to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus was, was Paul's home, 
was Saul Paul's hometown, okay? It's where he was from. So like, we're going to send you back to where you're from. I want you to preach the gospel there. In the context you know, with the people you know, go and preach the gospel in Tarsus, Paul. And so they send him away because, again, the persecution had ramped up against him. Such a, man, it's just such a amazing evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that this guy who used to think it was all fake, phony, and made up was now contending for it and then being threatened to be killed for it and yet still did not waver. So, this last part as we land is that grace transforms a community, okay? Grace, grace takes this church, like, next level here. Because the reality about what's happening here, even though now Saul has gone away, many would say after the leaving of Saul, because persecution was so, in so many ways, kind of centered around his work, that persecution got even more rampant during this time. We already knew that they were scattered about because of Saul's work. And so now you have the church, and it says it begins to experience these things at greater and deeper levels than it previously had because grace transforms a community if we allow it. If we don't constantly fight and war against it instead and, and, and contend for our own beliefs and the way we think things should go. And I think it happens in a few different areas. The first is just this picture of forgiveness. That you see the church and they're going to continue to grow in their faith and belief in, in Saul as, as their brother and as a disciple and as one of them. Indeed, he would eventually go on to be called kind of the least of the apostles by himself because his own admonition. But earning kind of the respect of the people around because of the grace of God that they began to understand at deeper and greater levels, but also because they began to understand the depths of forgiveness. And so, I, I mean, just real pointedly, as he transforms, hopefully, our community here at Redemption Flagstaff, our community as the church across our entire city, are we growing in this area? Where people who have hurt you, who have shamed you, who have done things that have just driven you down, that have pushed you even away from God at times, what does forgiveness look like in your life today with them? Because the Bible says to go and be reconciled. The Bible says because of the grace of God, you can go in forgiveness instead of allowing that unforgiveness to slowly degrade and destroy your joy. And so are we walking in that? We see that also the church is transformed and their community is transformed in this area of unity. Again, we continue to see all the church coming together and more and more and more as the gospel begins to reach the Gentile parts. They're now in Samaria. So more Gentiles, more non-Jews are becoming believers and followers of the faith. This is problematic for a people who don't think, uh, initially did not think that the gospel or the good news or God was for anyone but them. And so as more people come in who for a long time did not belong but now belong because of the grace of God, the grace of God transforms the community that they would be united for the sake of Christ. Are we going that direction? Or is there continual infighting? Is there continual questioning, continual judgment? Or is there, hey, let's sit down at a table when we have questions and let's have some conversations about the grace of God and how we serve alongside each other? Another area, I think, is in this idea of peace. Physical, emotional, spiritual. And, and again, when we start talking through this idea of peace, peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's saying this whole idea that the Jews would have brought into this idea of peace was this word shalom, which meant essentially like the flourishing and the way everything should be. So when they said peace was restored, it began to look like everything they thought, man, this is the way life should look like, it began to look like. 
And that begins to come into the church. And so when we look here at Redemption Flagstaff, when we look at the church across our city, do we begin to say, man, things every day as we pursue the grace of God, as it transforms our city and our community and our church and our hearts, will we look at our lives, we look at our interaction with the people around us and the mission we have in the city and say, this is more like it's supposed to be than it was yesterday? Or are we just moving towards greater levels of discord and brokenness? The last one is it does grow in size and in influence as more people are added to the number. More people are saved. Are we seeing people come to know Jesus and get saved here at this church and in our churches across this city? Because grace saves people. Grace calls the people within it to go and share the gospel and tell the world. And then God does the rest and saves souls. And are we seeing that? These things should be, as we saw, evidentiary of the grace of God that is resting and believed and lived out by the church. And so it's a great opportunity for us as a church and as individuals to triage our own lives and to triage our church to say, man, okay, if we're not seeing any of this, which I'm not saying we're not, but the levels where we think we should see more, I'm calling us as a church and as individuals to men, delve into a deeper understanding of the grace of God. That the entire gospel story is about the righteous one coming to a whole bunch of unrighteous people to save us. it's, It's about, it's truly a story, okay, of the perfect altruistic king of this world coming to the enemy to save the enemy when the enemy had done nothing but destruction. At every level, the grace of God is a story, or the gospel of God is a story of grace. And the final thing I want to say before we land is that if you don't get it, there's no chance you'll ever give it. Because you can't give away something you don't have. And so, church, I'm calling us for a deeper understanding of the grace of God if we want any fighting chance to ever try and give it away to this world and to each other. If your marriage is struggling, you need to spend some time with the Lord wrestling with grace. Okay? If you're struggling as a parent, raising your kids, you're just constantly frustrated. You need to spend some time thinking through the grace of Christ. Okay? If, if your roommates, if you're struggling, if you, got, you hate your teacher, okay? you need to think through the grace of Christ. At every level and every relationship, and then ultimately, and focus on, okay, Christ, what have you done for me? And I'll tell you this, that from... The day I got saved 13 years ago to to today, I know I need the grace of God more now than ever before because I've constantly learned just how messed up at the end of the day I really am. And that is an okay thing to understand and to believe because then it puts in perspective how much more we need Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the grace that we need to transform us and transform our communities and ultimately transform the world. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for grace and the way you used it to to transform this community of the early church continually. God, they were already doing pretty good, but then, God, you just did more, and you continued to work on their hearts and on their lives because a rival doesn't exist until we're in heaven. And so, God, I, I, just, 
I thank you that you're still working on me. You're still working on us. And that's good news because as is right now, Lord, I want more. I want more of what you want to do. And so, Lord, we pray that your presence and your spirit would be with us, that it would transform us. God, in all the ways that we're kind of rejecting that, we think we've already arrived. We don't come seeking more of your work in us. We don't believe that you're still active. We feel like, okay, we're Christians now, so we got, and any of those things, God, that I do, Lord, I confess right now as a church, we confess that, Lord, and pray you'd root that out of us and that we'd always be hungry for the work of grace to continue to sanctify us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Make us more like Jesus today, Lord, in the way we treat one another, the way we love one another, the way we serve one another, the way we bless this, uh, this city. God, we thank you that you've saved us and you contend for us and give us a fighting chance, God, at being yours. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. After every time that we open up the word together, we, we take just a couple minutes to sit and reflect on the word of God and just to think through kind of stuff we heard, where God's churning. I want to leave you kind of just with a final note this morning. My little boy, Finley, he's two and a half, you know, and so he's starting to become a little more independent, which is, which is awesome and terrible at the same time, okay? But one of the things that's amazing is, uh, you know, he'll start trying to do something, and I'll go to help him, and he'll look up at me, and he says, he goes, do it by myself, Daddy. Do it by myself. And I'm like, all right, man, try it, you know? And then right now, most of the stuff he still can't do by himself. Like, he's like, I'm going to make an omelet. I'm like, well... Do it by myself. And so what I, what I end up doing is I uh, kind of secretly, while he's trying to do stuff, I'll, like, I'll turn on different things, right? Or, or, or I'll start screwing it in when he's not looking. So when he comes back, it looks like he did it, you know, Be, because I want him to flourish, right? I, I want him to experience joy. I, I want him, e- even though he's done nothing, right? It's not his skill that's going to cause anything to happen. It's the skill of his father. It's the gift of his father to invest in his son for the flourishing of his son and the joy of his son. This is exactly, and every moment I've been, every time it happens, I get convicted about this is my relationship with the Lord. I constantly think it's me, and it's always him. It's just always him. And so this morning as we reflect and as we sing and we think through the grace of God, the grace of God is the thing that allows us to breathe this morning. It's why we stand. It's why we sing. It's why we respond. It's why we can reflect. It's why we will be with him, not just now, but forever. And he's doing it all. Even the stuff we think is us, it's him. That's the God we sing to right now. That's the God I want you to reflect about that has so come in and given grace upon grace that we reflect upon in this time. And so let's spend the time doing that now. And Anthony will come up in just a moment and lead us in a time of response.